This is Resist and Renew. The UK-based podcast about social movements. What we're fighting for, why, and how it all happens. The hosts of the show are... Me, Kat. Uh, me, Sammy. And me, Ali. I'm recording this now, baby. Shit, it's a podcast! <laughs> <laughs> hey, everyone. Um, thanks for joining us again for this episode of the Resist and Renew podcast. Um, before I go ahead and pass to Catherine, who's going to introduce this week's guest, just wanted to say a couple of things about this being our final episode of season one. Um, so as we mentioned last week, uh, we have some thoughts and ideas around doing a season two at some point, but uh, we'd love to get some feedback in the meantime about what's been working and what you'd like to see more of, what you'd like to see less of. Um, so if you are up for that, we have a Google form, which we're putting with these show notes and also sharing on social media. So if anyone wants to let us know uh, what yeah, what your thoughts are, that would be really great and really appreciated and help us think about future episodes. One other thing to say about this episode is that during the editing process, a couple of the segments uh, asked to be changed by our guest and we we're really happy to do that um, but it just means the audio quality is a bit different as these were voice notes sent to us later on so a little bit of a warning about audio quality but stick with it because there are gems in there over to Catherine great okay so uh, welcome to the Resist and Renew podcast and uh, we're joined by Fazana Khan welcome it's really great to have you and um, Faz- Great. Um, Fazana is the executive director and co-founder of Healing Justice London. Her practice works on building community health, repair and self-transformation rooted in disability justice, survival work and trauma-informed practice, working with communities of colour and other marginalised and underrepresented groups. We're so glad you're here. Thank you for joining us. So the first question um, that we'd love to ask you is to just invite you to share a little bit about the context that you're organising in. Um, the context so I guess that's like the political reality and the social reality Um, I think we are living in a world that is um, chronically unsustainable and has been designed to be so it brutalizes our bodies all our bodies but particularly those that it has otherized on racialized class gendered ableist sexist lens Um, and so I guess that's the context in which I am organizing is how do we, within the, the the real limits and confines of these social constructs that we are forced to live in, but also live the cumulative impacts of every day and reproduce, um, how do we restore agency? How do we access profound connection in these worlds that separate and thrive on our separation? And um, and also um, live meaningful lives that feel fulfilled and um, generative and and as whole as possible. So, I guess that's it. And the context of what is being revealed right now, of COVID, global political uprisings, very much the man the 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 revelations of that. I just wanted to hone in on you. You said that. The world we're living in is chronically unsustainable and that definitely feels true and you said it's designed to be that way like what 
what what is your analysis or understanding that means you you see it as a, as designed that way uh, I think when we look at some of the most dominant power structures, which aren't isolated, even though I might be talking about it. So if we talk, look at white supremacy, we look at capitalism, we look at neoliberalism, we look at um, these dominant uh, paradigms that we live um, and are products of. Um, what they thrive on is things that contribute to unsustainability of planet, of people, of relationships. They rely on breaking and disconnection. And for me, a lot of my work explores and has had to explore violence. And the heart of violence is disconnection in the spectrum of, of, of ways that we become disconnected emotionally, physically, spiritually, energetically, communally. And, and so when we see, we think about what those paradigms rely on is this, that, that absolute unsustainability um, in, in not just an external level, but also what we internalize. So we internalize behaviors and patterns that um, mean that things are not designed to thrive, to generate, but to operate in a very exploitative and extractive, extractive way. So things are only as valuable as, as they produce um and and that that modality that brutalized modality is one that um isn't sustainable in and of itself but is also something that when we really connect with it and we are not the the few that are in the power powerful um don't seek to sustain as well so um i think that's what what i mean and i and i think it becomes really localized when you look at your own self and how you're trying to liberate yourself and work through different forms of oppression and or even navigating life, then I think it becomes clear how much the chronicness of unsustainability informs our, our, our lives from the ways that we are routinely having to self-abandon, you know, even in our organizing, even in our community work, because these are the, the structures in which um, we're operating in. So I think that's, I definitely see it as chronic um, because it's cumulative. Um, and I also, and I want us to have an analysis that isn't just that it's been continuous, but that each moment then accumulates deeper layers of oppression and, and harm and abuse. Yeah, I, I, uh, I found that definition very clear and I definitely appreciate it the like locating exploitation and unsustainability in our bodies like I feel like I don't know like if you think of like Marxist, Marxist texts it's like exploitation accumulation of capital it's all very abstract it all seems like yeah there's a system but I don't really get how it interacts with me except when I go to work and then it's in the certain conditions or whatever but yeah like locating it in our bodies and locating it in day-to-day -day interactions choices even our organizing i think that like grounds it in uh reality that i'm living and i guess those moments are also choices where i can choose to not do that Absolutely. And, and i guess that leads me to like the question of like what is healing justice and like how does healing justice london see doing things differently um, 
So I can only speak more for myself in Healing Justice because there are lots of people who make up Healing Justice from a core team to core practitioners to a whole bunch of practitioner networks, um, which is huge and international. Healing Justice is a framework that really connects um, the relationship between oppression, liberation and healing. Um, and it's emerged out of survivors, disability justice, um, communities of colour, um, and also connecting the relationship to between our health, our personal sustainability, and also what are the ways that we do get to heal ourselves that are non-Eurocentric modalities, that don't re rely on whiteness to, um, to save us. Um, and so, uh, or capitalism, as we see with the, NG, uh, the wellness industrial complex. So I think that within um, healing justice, a lot of our focus is trying to create a, a, a space to um, build uh, analysis, information, share um, around what community health is, especially for those that are marginalized and what the types of health needs are but also to disrupt public health, because we do have it here in, in the UK context, in the ways that it participates in our oppression from, you know, eugenics, which are still present in our public health systems, to the deep gendering, to the class classist and ableist ways in which um, not just the NHS, but surrounding public health systems interact, which in, uh, or other parts of public infrastructure in, interact. So, you know, we know that predominantly deaths in custody have been folks who experience emotional mental distress um and so really thinking about what what does wholeness and health look like without the normative m model or framework being centered on a white male body which is why you know as much as there is so much value in marxist analysis it was still generated from a white male body that doesn't have to experience even itself because itself is the norm. And so when you made that connection between the body and not an abstract things, marginalized bodies are forced to encounter oneself. And what we know about um, oppressors is that oppression, oppression oppressors don't experience themselves. And part of that disassociation then enables abuse and harm and violence to take place, which is why the the redress is so often connection and reconnecting. Um, so yeah, uh, healing justice really does explore those kinds of those points of health, healing, and um, and uh, oppression and and liberation. The other side of it, like what is the alternative? And we have lots of different interesting ways that we explore that. Kind of our three main strategies is one to build internal capacity. So capacity within our own communities right now and those those you know what's the language we have what are the tools that we have what are the networks that we can access that supports our communities to become robust enough so we become robust enough to have the agency to participate and determine and shape the second part which is external capacity public infrastructure or policy or to participate in our lives and our realities because you can't do you know, a lot of the time everyone's like, everyone needs to just like be active or politicized, but actually to be present in your body enables you to be able to 
um, know what you're asking for and to follow through and be accountable. So the second part of our work is really about shifting the external, which is public health systems and corresponding spaces. Um, and within that, we look a lot around challenging whiteness or, or a particular model we have is disarming privilege. So dominant identities, not just whiteness. And then the third is sustaining capacity. So how do we support our emerging leaders and how do we have an ecological sense of leadership? How do we support the front lines? Um, what is the healing, the conflict work, the choosing to be in community that we all need to participate in because we don't know we don't know how to do that. Um, so those are kind of three strategic kind of intervention points. But within that, we have particular approaches and particular um, entry points that we explore that are specific to our communities. So, for example, um, you know, we mentioned trauma informed as an approach, disability justice as an approach. But then we are, the entry point for us, for example, in one of our research is loss and grief, litany for survival in homage to um, Audre Lorde um, particularly looks, looks at loss and bereavement because black and brown and people of colour communities experience disproportionate loss and bereavement and there is a strong correlation to the lack of apparatus or support around loss and grief and criminalisation um, and those who are criminalised who experience loss and grief. So for example, um, one study showed up to um, um, at 90% of adult male population had experienced, young adult male population had experienced up to six bereavements. And so what does that tell us about how people cope? What are the mechanisms and, and what behavior is criminalized? Um, what survival mechanisms are criminalized? So that's an example of how we are trying to be responsive and work with the things that matter to our communities um, within the work. And there is, you know, other things that are led by different folks in the group, like we've got a beautiful piece of work around medical and institutional trauma that's being led by Dr. Jiffa um, and a team around that. So it's uh, really, um, yeah, I could speak about it all, all the time and, and not do it justice because so many people are um, contributing to making that happen. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Like it's It sounds like phenomenal work and yeah, really, really exciting to hear the range of, of projects that are underway as well. Um, I think something that's arising for me, I'm curious how Healing Justice London came into being um, and, and what drew you to create this, this manifestation in the world? Um, Healing Justice London came, I feel like one thing I should say is, and and as other folks maybe have heard, I feel um, I have been entrusted with healing justice and I, it will only be with me for as long. And my team, we, we talk about this all the time, actually, like we, we say we're entrusted with it. Sarah, who's a co-founder with me, we say we've been entrusted to support it. And the moment that we're not right or someone else is better, we need to like know how to transition and we constantly need to build so that that is possible um and so i feel for myself i was in, entrusted with it it came out of multiple different things for me personally um prior to healing justice i was um working on voices that shake um and coordinating and running a lot of the work there which is a youth um race arts and power program and you know that was one side the other side that was i was working with a lot of young women of color also doing a lot of community 
work and um, in East London, predominantly Muslim, predominantly working class, living under prevent. And within the, the with the young women, a lot of the issues that were surfacing for these young women of colour was around gendered harm and gendered violence. And so what I was doing was um, realising what my work then was supposed to be about a youth programme was actually really concerned with the safety, consent culture, gendered harm, structural gendered harm, not just interpersonal. Um, and so really, and also how state the state is the first abuser, really. Um, and so um, within that, I had started designing um, a, a su survivor work practice that then I didn't have the language for it. That wasn't, that also understood we were living under prevent. So, you know, there was a lot of data capture happening and that the state also was traumatizing a lot of young women and taking them into foster care or criminalizing their parents, even though that wasn't, the, the, there were correlations between what was what had happened to them or what they were experiencing. So just knowing that the, the areas that one might seek for health and support were actually just violent spaces. And it, and it became violent on the intersections of deepen, deepened the violence so from race to class to Islamophobia um, and then also mental health, um, which are, you know, of course, your mental health is affected if you are a survivor. Um, so, you know, um, and, and then so within that context, I had started building frameworks that were looking at healing that are non-Eurocentric, that, that the young women could access or relate to, connected to their spirituality, connected to what made sense. So, um, you know, for example, we, we, we would have consent conversations so connected to chicken and chips. So we would be, you know, thinking about what nourishes our body, what can enter our body, what do we give permission to? I mean, it sounds a bit trite here, but we, you know, we'd have to do full sessions that moved from food and nutrition and nourishment to consent, but in a way that honored and charted people's realities. Um, and while I was trying to get that work funded, it was just wasn't being funded. The local council saw it as public health work, but, and ranked it like one of the leading initiatives, but wouldn't fund it because I was under youth work. And so there was a clear need that this work that was being understood by local authorities as public health um, couldn't be done there, but also shouldn't be done there because of prevent and data and the way that, you know, that was happening. On the other side, again, for myself, working on Shake, you know, there was a lot of increasing um, um, vo vocalization from young people um, about the levels of cumulative trauma of like wanting to show up, but on the day, you know, they might be given an opportunity to, or shared an opportunity to take up a panel space and, you know, on the day they can't get out of bed. Or when they are in that, to have taken up a job, they experience so much microaggression, they're not working for three years afterwards. So like really looking at what does it mean where previously we were saying essentially representation, more representation, that representation without participation, like you being present in your body, is performativity and it's also harmful. So where is the infrastructure and the ecosystem that supports us to know how to show up and also to, as a cultural norm, understand that that's not a static thing, that one day you, when you live in a, a oppressive systems, that one day you're like, you've come into your full self and that's it. 
but actually it's dynamic, it's it's non-linear. Um, and you, you also will have appropriate trauma and survival responses as all of us are doing right now with COVID. Um, and so I think that those two, two things for myself provoked me to do a call out to Shakers and um, within that um, two folks had responded and, and Sarah being one of them, the other, um, uh, she um, was working with us, but then had to prioritize her own mental health and took some time out. But we are super grateful for her initial work. And yeah, since then, it just kind of grew. What I should say is that during that period, I had gone to Insight, uh, which is the Color of Violence conference, you know, Mia Mingus, Angela Davis, um, who, you know, all were presenting. And that's where I heard the term healing justice um, as a framework. Um, and then we came, I had come back to London and, you know, just were exploring the term. And, you know, we had a whole collective of people come in and we were exploring the term. And a lot of people felt it's it sat. Um, but also it honoured the continuum that we're not doing anything new. That this is, you know, we sit in a continuum of people who have always tried ways, found tried to find ways to survive, to be in community, to... Um, source their own healing and so you know while healing justice maybe doesn't capture all of the work we do or might not completely fit um we it's okay for us to honor it and say we're part of the multiple different iterations of this continuum that is seeking healing and justice um and you know sometimes i'll use liberation practice sometimes i'll say abolition sometimes i'll say something else and i think it's also okay to surrender semantics for what is felt and and what we are longing and seeking and not get too preoccupied with it so great to hear the story of how it came to be like yeah i'm having been aware of healing justice london for a little while and like reading little bits of this but to have that strung together uh, it feels like a yeah i don't know how to phrase it but and and, just, and just, i really want to also honor that so many other people like the litany for survival team that we work with they've really taken it one way sarah's practice the team that we've got now like there's so many different manifestations but that spirit of seeking and longing almost liberate itself almost joyful and generative and fulfilled self is I think the thing that um, connects us and knowing that anti-oppression work is part of that. Mm. Yeah, amazing. Um, I think a thing you said in the previous question, which struck me was the, the point about being in community and like the fact that we don't necessarily know how to do that. And as someone who's like been organizing for a while and like trying to build community through organizing or living in an actual place that we call a community that's like an intentional community and feeling the difficulties of that and feeling like how bad I am at conflict and how bad we are at like creating space to like hear each other and work through those differences I wanted to ask like what what kind of practices do you have internally for healing justice London for community and like putting these values into practice I think like everyone we're still figuring those things out um, at the moment, because of COVID and, you know, our team has expanded during COVID. Um, prior to that, it was predominantly Sarah and I and the research team on Listening for Survival. We, we very much uh, um, historically have always paced 
that was the thing that we were always you know timelines weren't were irrelevant because we had other responsibilities care responsibilities children those types of things and really understanding that in one moment one of us might get to show up in another moment someone else might have to be supported um, as our team has grown we're still really navigating those things and and the context of covid has applied another level of not just organizationally figuring that out but also because the demand around our work is, is so high like you know for the first you know just before we'd even gone into lockdown a few weeks before um i was in a lot of kind of policy spaces as the only person of color talking about race in relation to covid so it was also startling that or you know that we would you know healing justice was being invited to this space and not because people aren't doing the work because there's lots of community groups that are working around our health around our well-being around our wellness but just that there hasn't been an infrastructure a, a public body something that on a kind of resourced level that could intervene existing so i was so often shocked to, to receive those types of intervention and um, invitations but also to then be in these spaces that are um you know um uh, um valuing our work or recognizing our work maybe not valuing it but recognizing or finally understanding the relationships between race and health um and so i think that there's with that an, another layer of like figuring out expanding the team and how do we do that all mm -hmm. virtually how do we do that all um responsibly and i think one of the things that we you know as i mentioned earlier is also around the trust right that we know we're entrusted with it, working with loss and being transparent about loss is that it's not a failure to wind something down. You know, we received um, the largest amount of funding, which is still quite small for other organizations, but for us, it was huge. And we, you know, our initial you know, response was, you know, how do we make that money work? How do we make it work? If we've got one shot and one year, how do we make it, um, do its most radical thing, but also be responsible to the people around us. We do, you know, we make sure that folks are paid well um, and, and, and labor is honored, that we have folks with lived experience on our team, like our organization is led by lived experience of the multiple different intersections of, uh, from survivorhood to disability and chronic sickness to um, lots of different other intersections beyond race um so that that nuance is part of our culture and we also have a deeply reflective team i think we can there's always space to be more reflective there's also always more space to be um um you know building better practice things like you know trying one of the things we're trying to do is like a collective movement session together we try and ground we also um, work, try work really hard to not have a punitive culture, even on a like low level, passive aggressive, if you know, that can just happen. And also thinking about power. So for example, I'm the executive director, but my cap for being an executive director is three years. And, and the reason that it's three years is one, that's enough time to responsibly support anyone else to come into that role and accountably do that but also that it puts the onus on me and our work culture to um, build infrastructure and systems that any one of us who wants to lead or take it in a new direction can. 
And I think that that is um, really exciting because it's not being dishonest about the different levels of labor that, you know, or expertise or experience, because sometimes, you know, a lot of the, the Marxist, you know, space will be like flat structure and we completely invisibilize labor, we completely invisibilize experience um, and skills. And actually what we're saying is let's be honest, let's honor that, but let's build mechanisms that start to level the, the, the power and let's do that responsibly not just like you know I hand in my notice one year or you know and you've got like six months but actually it's part of our culture and you know I think that that has been something that I feel constantly invites me you know to make decisions knowing that you know okay I've got this is the time where I'm gonna step into a different role sidestep I might become a practitioner I might become an advisor and still work in healing justice so it also puts the pressure that I want to be in a culture that also nourishes and supports me when someone else is in maybe a leadership role. So there's a lot of, um, you know, exciting things that we have to figure out and we are thinking about and also trying to make accountability something we think about together. So we've had a recent session where we've tried to collectively map out what are the, what are the things that we need accountability on and then how do we find the pathways to those accountability and a lot of it is building culture it's not just like a happened and b happened because that tends to be around conflict but what is the culture and patterns and things that we need to um start fostering and nurturing and and a lot of that is also on an individual level um and one of the great things about our teams and definitely um also with our practitioners we've definitely um, seen many times when if we're not looking at, at things in the same way or we're bringing different perspectives and what's been really beautiful is that we tend to like take time apart uh, apart think about are we projecting onto this what has informed the thinking the positioning and we'll come back together and um, yeah move through it and one of the the kind of beautiful phrases by Adrian Marie Brown where she's um, talking about how in conflict there can be a breakdown of trust and that's health that can then actually deepen trust or um clarify a boundary and i think these really generative ways in which we can we're thinking about what it means to to be able to have accountability to move through um, hard conversations clarify boundaries deepen trust um is really central to some of the the cultures we're nurturing but we've also been able to um, participate and, and, and experience. And that feels really good because so much of this work can feel like theory and, and frameworks. And actually when you are in the practice and you get to feel into where it feels good and it feels possible, um, then that invitation um, means that we, we continue to move forward and build this politics knowing that it's, hmm. it's completely possible. Um, and that feels really, really good. Yeah, when it is all over And the second hand is tied We used to remember the ways that we ride When it is all over And our hearts growing wild We used to remember the ways Remember the ways
incredible. There's just so many things in what you've just said that I sparking things off for me. Um, I really like the idea of like loss being not being a failure and like honoring winding things down. There are like at least two or three groups that I am nominally have been a part of and might even pe people think I'm still a part of and I pretty sure they don't exist, but we don't have, no one's ever closed it and there's no like honoring that for ourselves and there's no honoring like making space in uh, in like the movement ecology for like other groups to pop up because they think we still exist it's just like yeah really value like composting spread those <laughs> nutrients out and let, let something else grow up from that space because like yeah it's done completely and i think you know we forget that that we come from traditions where things are cyclical and and dynamic and also you know there's a lot about whiteness that perpet wants to perpetuate itself you know capitalism wants to perpetuate itself and it's that i think therefore i am like i continuously exist and actually what happens when we you know a lot of you know one of the things that we do in in healing justice is that we do allow our spiritual selves to show up and from our different traditions our different practices and for all of us, those things reveal to us also that loss isn't failure. It's not an end. It's it's an entry point. It's a portal. It's the um, the next iteration. And I think that also allows us to trust loss or trust the completion. And one of the healing just or the last healing justice uh, principle is um, how we honor the cycles of life and death. Um, and so I think that we, you know, definitely are, um, you know, in a, in a habit where we do see completion or things, um, you know, think people moving in different directions, things completing is just healthy and normal and, um, and creating. And, and I think another principle you mentioned earlier that I wanted to pick back on was the idea of being trauma-informed because I guess with this understanding of like deeper structural oppression that affects different people in multiple ways like trauma is obviously a part of all of our lives but in particular people who face like the multiple oppressions so how how do you what what is your trauma-informed practice look like how do you how do you yeah approach it in a sensitive way thank you that's such a um pertinent question given the context that we're in and the cumulative and compounding experiences of distress and overwhelm and trauma that many of us are appropriately feeling um i think what's important for me to kind of hold is one that the field of, of trauma um, in a lot of ways is expanding and evolving um and some of that is actually remembering um a lot of indigenous and cultural and spiritual wisdoms that already know um, and have tapped into and tuned into what it means for us to process and reprogram um, traumatic experiences and forms of slow violence or cumulative um, harm. And the other, you know, and within that we see the field of racial trauma um, expanding and being understood more deeply right now and the ways that that shows up um, and also that you know sometimes you know especially in the kind of activist and organizing uh, spaces while there's an acknowledgement of trauma sometimes 
it can be weaponized or used to absolve a behavior, um, bad behavior, or or um, not uh, create opportunity for be being able to practice accountability. And so I'm holding all of, and and and, and there's more uh, ways in which I really want to be conscious and responsible, talking about tra- trauma and and just on a, a practical level. Um, and, and Enka Mendefo, who does incredible work, um, I think some of the most pioneering work around trauma-informed work, and you can check out her organization, Lumos Transforms, and we're really lucky to be able to work with Enkem so frequently. Um, Enkem really um, recently was um, running some sessions with our team, and you know she um, reminded us that even the word trauma can have an effect on people and folks sometimes aren't even ready to to see their experiences as as traumatic and so sometimes interchangeably uh, we use the word like overwhelm or stress or distress um and and so i think that's also really important to bring into the space in terms of how our organization builds in trauma-informed ways um i need a whole like session or day because there's there's so much so much in that work and to do that really sensitively and and appropriately and to hold the different nuances because the thing with the ways in which trauma shows up is specific to um our stress responses and our coping mechanisms which they may fall under you know fight flight um freeze and fawn um but they also have different kinds of iterations or manifestations across different contexts and communities and so um what we can do in in trauma-informed practice in a more generalized way for this podcast that i can touch on is really think about um um Enkem calls it resourcing we talk about it as capacity so we one of our um phrases that you'll see with our organization we always talk about creating capacity for transformation and so what is the resourcing that needs to take place to support people to be here or not be here, actually? Um, and, and in particular, I want to reference another incredible practitioner in the trauma-informed um, in trauma-informed work, work, particularly around survivor work, which is Molly Bader um, Harris from the Breathe Network. And again, really lucky to be able to... Um, build um, with Molly. Molly recently uh, reminded us of, of, of a phrase that's like, um, what are the ways in which you weren't allowed or able to be here that allowed you to be here? And I think that's it's that kind of skillful uh, awareness that we have to build, but we also have to do it as a culture of understanding that a different context, we need to be adept and we need to be able to adapt um, and to support people to um, be congruent with the context that they're in and so that the responses that they're having is congruent with their reality. So if it's appropriate for you to um, shut down and, you know, disassociate, then how are you supported in um, uh, accepting that or um, being held in that? without shame or stigma uh, because there are so many things that we shouldn't be able to survive and Audrey Lord talks about that like that we we're not meant to survive 
in the context of oppression. Uh, and so we, we also don't want to reconfigure it so it's just a little bit workable. Um, and so when we're thinking about trauma-informed processes and methodologies, we're really thinking about holding the different communities, the different contexts in which we might be designing a program, in, my, in which we might be um, uh, building a project, we might be working with an individual, and what are the, are the different um, entry points, the different access points where people can, in a more dynamic way, participate or not participate. And I think this is really key. Um, so we do a lot of, uh, we use a lot of scaffolding. Um, we we normalize the different coping mechanisms in our work. We do a lot of um, um, opting in and opting out. And we also um, support in certain spaces that, that resourcing and resilience building through different types of programs. And people can um, choose to participate in that. In, in ways that feel appropriate to them. So kind of work around embodiment and somatic practice. Um, we've got a regular yoga um, uh, session where you, if that's what you need and that's where you feel you can, you want to kind of um, build that, that bank and relationship, consensual relationship with your body, then we have that. We have uh, meditation and breath spaces. And those spaces are where you can kind of do that regular um, kind of uh, building of resilience while also the holding the context that that may not be the appropriate thing for you and we again will set the space and say you know opt out adapt um, or you know be there in a capacity that brings comfort and support um, and so there are a lot of ways to be doing that and I think there is another aspect which we particularly look at which is the trauma or distress and or um that is caused by structural failure and harm and i think often when we when especially in medical spaces or um mental health spaces that absence of 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 um of how structural violence um and harm impacts us and creates um distress and trauma is, is that analysis is also runs through our work. So, you know, and, and, and as a result, we have to do and, and practice the liberation work. We have to practice the anti-oppression work and, and deepen in it um, because of the ways that those things are also trauma and distress inducing. So um, I don't know if that gives you a little bit of a, a flavor and insight. Um, um, again, I want to have these conversations in responsible ways and um, definitely do look into the two resources and also um, uh, we have a whole live program right now if you want to get involved more deeply um, on medical and institutional trauma um, and so there are spaces and opportunities where you can kind of get to know that and that's you know held with people with trauma-informed backgrounds and training so um, you can kind of interact with that in a way that feels right for you. Um, yeah, I hope, hope that kind of touches on it a little bit. Yeah, great. Um, and I'm really appreciating the kind of caution with that. It feels like it's spoken of so much, especially at the moment, that it can lose all sense of meaning or uh, depth. Um, and also thank you for sharing those resources. We'll make sure to add links um, to those places when we share this podcast. Um, there's been so much covered um, just in, in the last little while. 
um, that I am imagining that people listening to this might might be hungry for more. Uh, so we're curious um, what what our listeners might be able to do if they are inspired by by what they've heard you talking about this evening. How can they find out more, or where should they go next? Um, so you can go to our I would say our Instagram first because you know just until recently we were a very small team we still are a very small team given the amount of work that we do um so our instagram which is at healing justice london at the moment documents all the events that we do um and we have events all the time from regular continuous things to things that are a bit more um one-on-one um that so for example tomorrow we've got an event on nutrition and led by Michelle Patrick, who's an incredible holistic healer and acupuncturist. And what we do is we make sure that um, all our practitioners that we invite who share um, are folks with lived experience and aren't part of the dominant analysis around public health. Um, and so you, there are a, a, a range of different modes by which you can engage in. So for example, if you just want to come in and you're in a very cerebral space and you just want to learn from someone and you know, that's where you are at, you don't want to be doing body work or meditation that's completely legit and, and fair, then you can come to one of these sessions or we might have, we've got a session coming up. I, I, I forgot what it's called. I think it's called like sweat and I'm going to say sweat and joy, <laughs> but it's like a movement session led by um, Jade and again, a brilliant practitioner um, on conscious work, work, um, wellness. And so there are just different ways that you can engage. Because of COVID, we've kind of rolled out a program in honor of Arundhati Roy. You can tell we love writers <laughs> um, called Through the Portal. And that's coming to an end. But all of the workshops that have been run, including some for safeguarding reasons we didn't make live. So conversations around suicidality and disability will be on our website by the end of the year. So you'll be able to have an abundance of resources. Um, but if you want to be attending sessions, then you can look on the on the Instagram. And also um, we are working on um, you know, Libid Litany for Survival, this research project, which is, a, we want to be a community co-production. So we started some of that work last year on loss and bereavement, similarly around the work on medical and institutionalized trauma. So there are other ways in which folks can get involved. And then the website as it's being built will reflect more of the resources and where you can go. Um, I mentioned PACE, so we're just slowly doing it and we know we're going to be here for a while. So we're taking the pressure off the team and just letting things roll out um, um, in a way that's um, really honouring people's capacity too. I can even feel my own body relax when you say that. I'm just really appreciating that that way of being. It's really, yeah, it's really important. Um yeah, I'd just love to ask if there's anything else you'd like to share and that we might not have got to in the questions uh, or anything else that you want a bit more time on. It'd be lovely to hear. I think um, maybe what a lot of people ask me about, and I think, you know, if we are going into another second wave, um, we are never left our second, first wave. But we're going to another lockdown and, you know, you know, irrespective of without a lockdown or not, we are um we're gonna still be dealing with the impacts of the scale of loss not just physical bereavement but ways of being what we thought was our future jobs 
all of these things loss of connection all of this stuff so um i guess i really want to affirm two things one that there is never like there is no standardized or normal normal in quotations um quote unquote um way of of coping and grieving but there are apparatus that can support you so we're not we're trying to minimize harms that we might reproduce and we don't get it all all right and it doesn't happen overnight um but um taking time to invest in your body so one of my favorite affirmations right now is I, I let my body lead me to love and I say this every day and I say this because it every time I'm listening to my body which I didn't always feel safe in that I always or just about recently started completely trusting or as much as one can lets me know how to navigate things and so during this time while there's lots of things that are uncertain you have the certainty of your body and you also have agency um it may have been diminished it may have been harmed um but the, so many survivors will attest to you that it's absolutely possible survivors of multiple different harms to access joy profound intimacy pleasure connection but also to navigate life in a less um in a way that doesn't feel like it's so consuming and overwhelming when we start working with the body and the body starts start feelings like like the 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 safety or the certainty we can offer ourselves it doesn't you know i really want to say it doesn't happen overnight there's no right or wrong way to do it and if anyone is telling you this is the way you need to do it remind yourself you know best what you need and your body is probably informing you of that and if you're also not feeling anything in your body that's also okay um so starting with simple habits that you might want to introduce you know even you know i say simple but like even just putting oil on your body so you just feel what your body is like you know and i say that simple but whenever we've you know shared that as i practice people struggle it's not comfortable um but just whatever feels appropriate to you start there one habit one you know a 30 second breathing in your day just to allow and invite yourself to meet yourself which is a really delicious being and for me as a, as someone from a spiritual tradition you know you are an aspect of the divine um and so when you allow yourself to show up you um invite us to experience what the infinite possibilities um that you are and that's possible for us so taking that time for yourself is probably the most loving and accountable thing you could do for yourself and for other folks and whatever that looks like for you is absolutely appropriate and ask there's so much more resources out there now we've never had this much um resources um and you're not alone in it in in seeking and longing and at some point i'm going to park here it stops being about recovering yourself and it becomes about uncovering who you've always been and it's the uncovering and the expansion that is super super delicious like that's the only word to use it like it's just delicious um and your dominant experience then becomes joy because 
real life happens um but your dominant experience is it's it's joy and and i and i feel i can attest for that for myself and i i wish it for anyone who's listening on in this call thank you so much for that i think that's such a i'm just going to copy you say delicious <laughs> like to have that as like it might not be what you're experiencing now we are going through a crisis but to know that like through small small in quotes like simple but powerful practices there is that kind of thing to aim for and keep uncovering and yeah that's really that's really like hopeful <laughs> to have as a as a vision um this time has gone so fast for me i can't believe like an hour has passed uh really really grateful for everything you've shared so far and yeah thank you so much for spending the time with us and it's been amazing thank you for having me and receiving me i really appreciate it i love seeing both your faces um listeners i can see their faces and it's just so <laughs> lovely and delicious so it's delicious is a very infectious word it's, i think that's why i like it but yeah thank you for receiving um and putting this together as well my cheeks are a little achy from the smells, yeah, me too. and I haven't had that for a while, so that's nice. <laughs> oh, amazing. Okay, so season one has come to an end. Thanks so much for listening. Um, we hope you've enjoyed this first series, and yeah, we're looking forward to season two. Thank you to everybody who gave us time for all of the recordings. Um, we really appreciate everybody that gave us um, the generosity um, of time to enable us to actually have a podcast which wasn't just us three talking indefinitely for hours and to mix it up with some different voices so thank you for that thanks of course to Fazana Khan for being our guest on this last episode um, do check out all the work that Healing Justice London are doing on their website which is healingjusticeldn.org and check out their Instagram as well at healingjusticeldn thanks to Little Trumpet for letting us use their song Secondhand Time you can check out them on Bandcamp and their website is littletrumpet.net and a big thanks to Klaus for letting us use this song Neff uh, for our backing track on every episode and yeah thanks to everyone who's been listening really appreciate it if you could give us some feedback via the Google form and let us know what you'd like if we were to do a season two this is it uh, it's over boop, boop, boop. Yeah. Oh, we did it well done everybody bye